Welcome to TED's Podagogy. My guest today is Dr Louise Kay of the University of Sheffield School of Education, who researches early childhood education. Yes, today's focus is EYFS, specifically the tricky concept of school readiness and some other bits and pieces too. Louise, hello. Hi. So school readiness is obviously something that everyone is looking at at the moment. It's this perception that, you know, with great EYFS practice, we can make sure every child has an even starting uh, point at school. And you've done a lot of work about how problematic not just the concept is, but even the term uh, school readiness and how it means different things to different people. Do you want to start maybe about talking around the concept of school readiness? Um, Well, there is no clear definition about what school readiness actually means. Um, So therefore it's open to interpretation. Um, There are two main issues um, that arise from that. Every year um, around September, October time, we see media headlines that report headlines such as 30% of children aren't school ready. Um, And this is quite confusing. The logical assumption is that school readiness is the point at which children start reception, and that's what it refers to. Um, actually, the, tran- the government look at it as being a transition from reception to year one. Um, so consequently, you've got two different transitions there. You've got your institutional transition, where children enter from either home or preschool or nursery into reception, and you've also got your, tran- your curricular transition where children make that transition um, from reception into year one. Mm. The problem there is that uh, two very different skill sets are required for those two very different transitions. So um, your transition from reception into year, from the home environment uh, of a previous setting into reception, your skills, a teacher would be looking at things like <clears throat> children being able to leave the carer, um, being able to have practical skills such as toileting um, to be able to put their own coat on and feed themselves um, and to follow instructions and generally be able to function in a classroom. The transition between reception and year one, the skills that we would be looking for there are obviously much more advanced and much more linked to academic outcomes. So children by this point are going to be able to write their name or write a sentence, are going to know basic mathematical concepts. So the the blurring of what that actually means is very problematic for teachers, parents and children and that confusion doesn't actually help uh, with this idea of school readiness when there's two very different sets of skills and the media are often confuse those two different transitions as well as, as I think teachers, what I found in my research was the teachers assumed and I think logically assumed that when I was talking about school readiness I actually meant what children could do on entry into reception. So this construction school readiness uh, that comes through in policy, it does not align with what people actually understand school readiness to be. And I can talk more about that at length, if, you know, as we go on. Is it a is it just a political construct school readiness? Is it a well researched, uh, you know, cognitive development? Uh, process, you know, I mean, how much science is behind even a notion of what school ready might mean? There are different perspectives um, around the school readiness agenda, um, theoretical perspectives. So you have 
The idea that readiness is influenced by children's development rather than the environment, so this can't be accelerated beyond the child's natural potential. So, for instance, we wouldn't expect a, a one-year-old child to be able to write their name because they're not developmentally ready for that. Um, we've also got an environmentalist perspective where, children, where the focus is on the skills and knowledge children actually need for school. Um, there's also an interactionist perspective um, which includes uh, the family and the wider community and the part that they play in ensuring children are ready for school and also this idea of schools being ready for children as well because it should be a bi-directional process. Um, and there's a socio-constructivist perspective as well which aligns with the idea that there's no single definition of what school readiness is um, and it's relying on the personal beliefs of those who are actually working with the children. So you have there, and this is sort of where my research came into it, because I explored what teachers' beliefs were about school readiness and the tensions between the beliefs of the teachers and the very rigid and uh, instrumental way that policy frameworks, such as the EYFS and the Good Level of Development, as, as that summative um, assessment at the end of reception, actually measures school readiness. So you've got the very diverse nature of personal beliefs within a very prescriptive policy framework. And the good level of development um, is a way that the government actually measures whether ch children are school ready. And so does that allow for some difference? Is a good level of development, is, is that quite a broad term or is that a very, very specific term? The, the good level of development is very specific. So it is the... Um, it is the way that the government, at uh, the end of reception, um, the uh, teacher fills in the early years foundation stage profile, which is a, a, a summative assessment of each child in reception that, that is carried forward into year one. Um, so that, that assessment is, is reported to the government. So teachers are accountable for that. Um, within that, uh, obviously, there's the seven areas of learning. Children are said to have reached a good level of development if they achieve um, all the early learning goals in the three prime areas, which are physical development, communication language, and personal and social development, and uh, two of the specific areas of learning, which are um, maths and literacy. So a child effectively could achieve all the early learning goals, um, but not achieve, uh, say, for instance, the more difficult one, which is the writing one, which children year on year find more, find difficult to achieve, to write a sentence. So they might get everything else, but they don't actually get that one outcome. And therefore, they are measured as being not school ready within that construct. Um, so... That's, that's quite problematic because you you then send in children into year one in a deficit position because they haven't actually met that good level of development. They would be considered to be emerging in that aspect of their learning, which doesn't actually tell you much about what that child can do. Um, that's not actually specified within the early years foundation stage profile. It's only if children actually achieve the expected levels that that's recognised. It, it strikes me as quite a, a blunt instrument in the sense that I don't think at any point in your schooling you don't have a, a gradation of, of, of achievement. Like this seems to be a very binary school ready, not school ready, ready at a time when a lot of the developmental psychology and, and uh, research suggests that children are perhaps more apart at this age than any other in terms of their, their capabilities and, how, and their developmental pathways. Yeah, 
Yes, I, I mean, definitely think you've hit the nail on the head there with the idea of a binary uh, school ready and unready, and, and t Claire Tickle actually referred to it as children being unready. Um, and obviously the good level of development, I think, constructs that binary. Um, the children that don't achieve um, the good level of development, as the data report, tend to be um, free children free school meals, children with English as an additional language, uh, children with special educational needs, boys, uh, summer-born children and Gypsy Roma children. So children who are already marginalised uh, in some way within society. Um, you know, are the ones that aren't reaching those those goals and are therefore seen as unready. At a policy level, is there a belief, do you think, that uh, good, and I'm using uh, inverted commas here, good EYFS practice should mean that every child is school ready? Is is there a belief, do you think, in the system that that is, is, a, is a possible target? Um, well, I think, first of all, we need to define actually what school ready is um, yeah. and what age of child that refers to. I think that's really key. Um, I think policymakers believe that an earlier is better um, approach works. So the sooner we start teaching children um, more formal outcomes and, and I mean maths and literacy, then the better that is going to be as children work the way up through school. Now, there is research out there to suggest that that isn't always the case and it could actually be more damaging to children's self-esteem as learners if if these more formal instrumental technical areas of learning are forced on children when they're you know not ready um, themselves developmentally and I know that's sometimes a contentious issue right, about what that actually means but I do think that we need to recognize that the, when children enter reception they um, bring with them a wealth of different experiences and also they are, you know, there's huge differentiation in what they can and cannot do. And they only, teachers only have a very short space of time to ensure that children reach that good level of development at the end of reception. So the teachers, when they talked to them, they talked about things like not having a level playing field. Um, so, you know, all the children, despite their background, are expected to reach those outcomes at the end of reception. Um, and it, it, you know, use the word, using the word reductionist, it ignores the, the complexities and the diversities of children that we're actually working with. And they're still so young that some of these children are still four years old when this assessment actually takes place. And they're being, and I know this is the case throughout the school system, but they're then being assessed, at, you know, against children that were born in September and possibly nearly a whole year older than them. So, you know, there are, there are a few issues around that summer-born issue as well. Uh, and the fact that England has a school starting age that I know it's five in, 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 you know, policy, but actually the reality for most children is a school starting age of four due to the September intake. Um, and I think that is a huge, a huge issue. And I think if we could look at that and think, you know, maybe if we could move this, this compulsory school starting age to, to six, like other countries do, um, that might solve a lot of the issues that we see in the early years foundation stage. Well, I know, I guess I know, I know a lot of the research into some of the, the, the learning challenges children can have are best seen at the age of six as well. I mean, we had a feature on developmental language disorder. We've had stuff on um, children who are born preterm. And a lot of that research yeah. seems to suggest six is the age that children tend to manifest problems or challenges if there are going to be some. So 
I guess at the age of four, those you might be listed as not school ready when actually there's an undiagnosed problem that is emerging at that point. Or they yeah, might that problem might resolve as well. You know, they might be school yeah. ready a little bit later than other children. I think that I think that the, there was one author who, who referred to it as the gift of time, and I think that is something that we should be looking at giving to children. And I'm not, you know, for me as a teacher, because I am a teacher, if children are are ready to write and they are ready to read, then by all means, let's, you know, look at children on an individual basis. But it's it's the the problem emerges when we are trying to teach phonics and and, sen- and how to write sentences to children who can't actually articulate a sentence yet, and we should be focusing on those getting those skills in place, those foundational skills in in place before we we move children on. And I think the fact that teachers have such a short space of time to 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 get children to that good level of development you know, is, is an issue. And, and the good level of development, what I found in my research, absolutely permeated the, the classroom. It was the main focus of, of what the teacher was working towards. She talked about it all the time. Um, and she talked about the pressure that she was placed under and the children were placed under because of this good level of development, because teachers are accountable. So if, Say, for instance, their, their target is to get 60% of children to reach the good level of development and only 30% do, then you've obviously got to answer a lot of questions as to why that, that's happened, not just at the school level, but potentially at authority level. And, you know, Ofsted could also come into play at that point as well. So there is a, a level of accountability um, that, that does actually have a massive impact on teachers' practice. And this is part of my concerns around how the good level of development and school readiness agenda is actually impacting on pedagogy and practice within the reception classroom. And it definitely is. There's definitely find, more of a focus. Did you find that for most teachers that you spoke to for your research and since it, it works against their natural uh, inclination for that age group and also what their experience tells them they should be doing are they going against their own um belief system and based on their own experience and and the developmental research that they've read or do most teachers think this is what they should be doing where's the sort of opinion there i've just missed the last part of that question sorry it just cut out for a second it was a it was a whether teachers are sort of doing this you know they buy into this good development uh dictation on their practice or whether the their reading of uh, developmental research and whether their intuition and their experience tells them they should be doing something different so they're acting against their own belief system teaching in this way yes definitely they, they there were very clear contradictions and tensions and my my research framework my theoretical framework actually explored contradictions and tensions um so that came through really strongly in my research that um, a lot of the time they felt that they were doing things that weren't in keeping or aligned with their own beliefs around how young children learn. But there was also, um, there was also, and this made me think as well, one instance, uh, for, which I think is quite popular in reception schools now, although I don't know whether it'll change after the beginnings, but this idea of cursive writing and the, the teacher really, really fought against it, and she was, you know, this isn't going to work. It's not, it's not appropriate for these children to be using cursive writing, and was basically told it's a non-negotiable 
the, the whole school is doing this and you're doing it too. So she 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 once she had to go along with that, and and she said on the whole when she did it with the children, they could actually do it, and and that made me think as well. Sometimes are we holding children back because of our own beliefs and value systems, you know? And we really should be looking at things in a more critical way. But on the whole, um, she definitely. I mean, she she used to tell me. You know, she used to talk about how she wished she didn't have to always be. She could if she could just play with the children and see where that took them, and rather than constantly have to be trying to get writing in there or get maths in there, and uh, there were definite tensions between her beliefs and practice, and very little agency to do anything about it. Do you think a lot of that um, discomfort? with as you say these these more formal methods is because there's an understanding of the emotional well-being of 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 the child the, the sort of emotional development of that child as well that they they actually might need some time that's not structured or some time that is not uh formal learning at, at that age uh, i know that we've got a piece in the magazine soon about the key person and how many eyfs settings actually have are not enforcing the the key person uh, requirement and the damage that is actually doing on some of these kids and relationships with families. Are we seeing that a sort of the not degradation necessarily, but the, the the emotional needs of the child are becoming perhaps secondary, or the emotional development of the child is becoming secondary? I don't think. I don't think. I think for, for certainly, well, people who I know who teach UAFS, I think personal social skills will always be up there as being, and, and communication language skills. And I think there's three prime areas underpin um the practice that's going on in in reception um now i can't you know that may be something that needs to be researched as well and and to find out you know what's going on there but i do think that the the data is showing that children's personal social skills at the end of reception are you know are good um and i think that's part of and and when when we talked about school readiness the teachers didn't actually call it school readiness They, they used to use words like preparing children so they were preparing children for week for year one. So a lot of that preparation was around that more emotional side. So making sure children felt, you know, didn't feel anxious about moving into year one. So they'd take them up into the classroom and they'd, you know, show them what they were, what was in the classroom. And they'd have circle times around what they thought. And it was a very, you know, children were allowed to express feelings about that transition. So... I think that's always going to be a fundamental part of, of um, the early years. I think what is probably, um, lo- what children are probably always getting pushed to one side is perhaps play and also um, the more creative um, aspects of the of the curriculum as well um, could be, you know, the things that are, are being sidelined for the more formal maths and literacy outcomes. And also these outcomes, I didn't say this before, um, as time has gone on, since we have the desirable learning outcomes, which was the first, you know, attempt at a framework for, for early years in 1996, outcomes have actually been pushed down into reception. So when I first started teaching in year one, we used to look at Dublin and Harvard in year one. And now that is an expected, you know, children have to actually meet that outcome at the end of reception. So there are certain outcomes, especially in math and literacy, that have been pushed down. So the outcomes are actually harder to reach now than they were, say, you know, seven or eight years ago. Um, so again, that adds another dimension to this problem. I think the the interesting thing about the term school readiness as well suggests, you know, you have this dualistic 
notion about EYFS that at one you know at once in one sense it's being called a, a preparation period for for kids in school but the other on the other side you have all this pressure that EYFS has to be this change agent in a in a child's life that is is, is so important in terms of teaching so as an EYFS teacher you 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 sort of t- called a, a non-teacher in some respects because you know you're a preparation agent but in the other t- uh, sense you're being told that you're the most important perhaps teacher in this child's life yeah. there's a tension there I think do, do, do you Definitely. feel that when you go out and talk to UIFS practitioners um I think that within policy there are, within the UIFS there are those two definite competing discourses um, I mean, you have the whole thing around the unique child and, you know, all this lovely language about how the child is at the centre of everything that we do, yet that child still has to reach all those outcomes at the end of reception. Um, so, yeah, there were definite tensions around what, you know, what it was, what role the, the teacher was playing there. And I guess that takes us into into another area of your research, which is this construction of an early years teacher as an educational leader. Do you want to talk through that a little bit now? Uh, yes, certainly. So we have been, um, myself and Liz Wood, who is the head of school at Sheffield University School of Education, um, have been working with um, Australia Catholic University and Monash University in Australia looking at um, leadership. Uh, the rationale uh, for that, that uh, research partnership is that Australia often follow um, English policy initiatives. Uh, there are a few, just like we, you could argue, we follow some of America's. Um, so they're looking at, at what we've already done in England with regards to workforce reform, because that's actually currently an initiative in Australia. Um, so what we actually did um, was we started to look at um, the rationale for the workforce reform in England. Um, so this has obviously happened around 2010, the time of the Nutbrown review. And the reason for that was because there were uh, obviously variations in quality. It was all about raising standards in, in early childhood education. So not just in across the sectors, you've got your, your PVI sector, your private voluntary and independent sector. And then you've also got your maintained sector, the nursery and the primary schools. And so there was a, a variation in quality across, across um, you know, provision. So the government wanted to raise standards of care and education for children and also to professionalise the, the predominantly female workforce, um, which obviously is, is an ongoing issue with, with status and pay, um, with early childhood and, and, and people who work within early childhood. So this was a way of actually trying to professionalise that workforce and also to offer parents more choice uh, in, in the kind of setting that they could send their children to. Uh, so that was the wider rationale. Um, so what the government actually did then was was um, they created the early years professional. Uh, they wanted a graduate leader in every setting, um, and uh, there was a whole host of qualifications. So Cathy Nut Brown wrote her Foundation for the Quality Review, which then More Great Childcare looked at, and this was the government response to that, and actually uh, rebranded the EYP uh, into the early years teacher status which is where we are now um, so the idea being that this this graduate leader would be responsible for the education and care from birth to the end of reception or the end of foundation stage to improve that quality of provision and also professionalize the workforce and is and you know from from your research has that been a, a one a welcomed move and two a productive move I think so. I think it was. I think it was a welcome move. I think people recognised that 
um, standards, you know, raising standards is a good thing. Um, I think the people that we have been talking to, the professionals that we've been talking to, um, chose to do the EYP or the EYT because of the knowledge that it gave them uh, and the ability then to lead um, settings and manage uh, children's outcomes and staff development. Um, I think one of the key issues with um, the EYT was that, that the government didn't listen to um, Cathy Nut Brown's advice that one of the major issues uh, with the EYP um, and the EYT is that it does not have the same, um, it's not equitable to the qualified teacher status. So um, staff who have to, so EYTs and EYPs need a degree, they need Maths and English GCSE, they have to pass the skills test. The current standards for the EYT are almost identical to those of the QTS, yet the qualifications, the two qualifications of the QTS, with that comes salary, comes uh, professionalism, professional respects, uh, career progression. Uh, you can work throughout the primary primary school, you know, from reception to year six, nursery to year six. Whereas the EYT um, is is often paid a lot less. So you're looking at PBI sector wages, sometimes a pound more an hour than a level three. Um, yet the responsibilities that they have are absolutely huge. But people are still actually making a conscious decision and accepting that that is there, you know, that's the situation. And they're still actually choosing to go and work because they want to work with young children and they feel that they can make a difference with young children. But the, the whole rationale behind professionalising the workforce, that doesn't seem to have worked because you still get uh, EYTs and EYPs who, who are paid less. They have um, less um, opportunity for career progression. Uh, often schools, um, well, reception certainly, they wouldn't be able to teach in reception despite the fact they'd be much more knowledgeable than a year six teacher moving down into reception. So there's a whole host of issues with that that uh, qualification. And also, I think what is happening from what we've been seeing is that the qualification itself, people are starting to stop offering it. I think Teach First have actually um, said that they're going to stop, or Skills Direct, one of them, has said they're going to stop offering the qualification. Uh, universities are starting to pull out because people just aren't signing up for it. And is that another, uh, you know, another real um, example of the the problem of this dual pressure, you know, this tension that EYFS practitioners are under? You know, we're going to give you professional status, but we're not going to equate it with, 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 you know, with proper primary teaching qualifications. You know, there's this, there's this odd narrative I think around EYFS people who work in the EYFS that again they're yeah. they're important but not quite as important. It, it seems. Yeah. It seems to dictate a lot of the debate around it as well. It, it does, and more great childcare. Liz Truss had every opportunity at that point to follow what Cathy Nut Brown had recommended it and, and apply the same status to, you know, the EYT and the QTS. I think a massive factor in that is obviously um, econ uh, financial um, implications on the PVI sector because, you know, the, the resources aren't there to actually pay those kind of salaries. Um, so, yeah, there's a huge issue with regards to what is going on and, and the lack of, like you say, this idea that early childhood is the most important stage, maybe the investment and everything else, but actually that's not happening in, in reality. Mm. 
And I, I, before, um, as a last topic, I've been uh, asked by Nicola Clements, who's one of our, um, who's one of our columnists. She, she writes monthly on EYFS, and she says we have to talk about the Makey Project, um, if that's how you p- pronounce it. Um, yeah. Do you want to do you want to take us through a bit a bit, a bit of that? I believe it's, it's around the maker culture and, and that's yeah, very, pop- yeah. very popular in the US. So this was all started by uh, Jackie Marsh, Professor Jackie Marsh, who worked at the University of Sheffield. Um, And she apparently attended a a workshop in Berlin um, and noticed, observed that it was predominantly um, white uh, young men who were involved in this. So she was really inspired to um, be, you know, try and reach out and, and be um, more, inc- get more children, girls, um, ethnic minority children in, involved in, in science and, and STEM. Um, so obviously um, with the things like the Internet of Things, robotics, virtual reality, all this fourth industrial revolution stuff that's going on, uh, 21st century skills such as problem solving and collaboration, all this sort of really fits in with this idea of, of uh, maker spaces. So it's basically um, built on things like tinkering and hacking. Um, it's been going on for a while, uh, I think America, lots of stuff's come out of America around this. Um, so Jackie's idea was to uh, start this Makey project that would also support teachers and librarians and museum workers whose own experiences of science might not have been positive as well. Um, so activities that that children do um are around uh, the idea was was science technology engineering and math but to actually incorporate art into that as well which would hopefully engage uh, these marginalized groups that weren't involved in, uh, getting involved in science or seeing science as, as boring or not for them so um she's done loads of work with schools um they do pop-up maker spaces which have been really successful it's on a saturday afternoon in sheffield there'll be you know there could be a pop-up maker space where families can come along um i was involved in an after-school community project in broom hall in sheffield uh, where we set up the maker space um and it was really successful and we had children coming back week after week after week it would the aim was to actually um it was around the somalian community but what happened was we got a whole range of, of, of people uh, coming and children, a lot of home educators, uh, a lot of children from the local primary school. Um, and it, it, the thing about makerspace is that they, they are, it's, it's lots, they do activities that are lots of fun. And the children would talk about how they didn't realise science was fun and, you know, and what they were getting out of it. So that was a really, really good project to be involved in. And your and these kids are as young as four and five that are coming yeah. to these spaces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we had the thing with the community project is it end, we ended up just having all kind. We had babies and everything. It was just such a lovely um, sociable event because families would come and they would stay with the children. The children would would play with all the different activities and um, lots of like play doh circuits and scribble bots. Um, we had a 3D printer. They used like green screen animation and, and stop motion. Um, so there was lots of things there for them to use that they wouldn't probably access. And I think what they got out of it was it was for the, the older children. It was like a, a, a space to be free and what they wanted to do. And I don't think obviously in school they would get that that level of freedom in in that kind of environment. So yeah, it was it was lots of fun. It sounds quite um, reception friendly as well, you know. 
Mike my, my son has gone great. through his reception year and they do it seems to lend itself the maker space is, is quite a, a project based space it's quite a uh, self-directed in some way space and i think that sort of fits in doesn't it it absolutely builds on 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 eyfs principles around around learning through you know that hands-on practical um, activity and the characteristics of effective learning. So we've actually used the characteristics of effective learning um, to formulate an assessment framework, which, which sort of is, it sort of almost goes against what Makerspace is about. But we were wanted obviously to be for schools to be able to use the next plan is for schools to be able to start using these activities and actually showing what benefit children are getting from them, you know, what we're drawing from those experiences. So definitely, it does tick a lot of boxes with regards to characteristics of effective learning. The next idea Jackie has is is to create a maker bus. So right. um, yeah, that's going to be uh, good if that comes off. A maker bus to tour settings around the country. Yes, well, as Sheffield, I think at first, but <laughs> yeah, I think what, what I mean the feedback. Um, one particular anecdote that stands in my mind that a colleague was telling me at one of the maker state the pop ups was that a mother had, had said, you know, she'd be, she's so thankful, she's absolutely brilliant. She said, normally I'd be stuck in my flat with, with my child and I've been able to come out and then do all these fantastic activities and obviously it doesn't cost anything. So it is about accessing those communities and, and getting children involved um, in, you know, in a fun way. Mm. And is there a website where people can follow this up if, if, they, if uh, they're interested? There is, there is. Let me just see wait, if I can find the link. It's makey.eu, I think. Makey.eu. I can always send you that to And we can, we can put it in the notes for the podcast. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground from uh, school readiness to maker projects, but uh, thank you very much for, for coming on and uh, hopefully it'll promote some good discussion. Thank you for inviting me.